Well, hello, softball world. Here we are, Seven Innings Podcast, and I'm really excited to be here because I'm coming up for air from basketball season, and softball season is in full swing, pun intended. Um, you guys have been holding it down so great. How is everybody? Good. We're happy to have you back, Holly. Welcome back from your whirlwind Yay. to another whirlwind. To another whirlwind, yeah. So we've got Amanda Scarborough. I don't know all the nicknames like, like <laughs> Beth does it. I am a poor man's Beth Moen, so I'm just going to say your real names. Amanda Scarborough, Jen Schroeder, Kayla Bro, Maddie Shipman, and Jenny Dalton Hill will be on our podcast today. So excited to hear from everybody because we have a lot of really big topics, but we want to start at the very top, a really historic matchup this weekend that I'm really impressed with. Our number one thing on the lineup card today is the Sooner Sweep. Um, number one, for competitive reasons, because it was a rematch of the Women's College World Series champ series against the Texas Longhorns, and it didn't exactly go how I think everybody maybe thought it would go. We'll get into that. But the most important thing I thought was a new NCAA attendance record for the regular season was set. 8,930 people. And I really want to give Joe Castiglione, the athletic director at Oklahoma, a lot of credit. Uh, he and I were texting over the weekend and I was literally sitting on the sidelines at the final four and I got these pictures and he was sending me pictures of the crowd from Hall of Fame Stadium. So this was a very innovative marketing idea. And Amanda, I'd love to hear from you first about, you know, them deciding to hold this series at Hall of Fame Stadium in Oklahoma City so more people could attend Oklahoma versus Texas. Yeah, I think credit to Patty Gasso and Mike White for just coming to the decision to do it there, right? Like it takes both parties. It can't just be like Patty Gasso saying, hey, this is where I want to host my home game is at Hall of Fame Stadium. Mike White in Texas has to agree to it too. And what a great agreement that they made. I mean, 90 or 8,700 people, like you said, Holly, setting that new attendance record. And it was incredible like to watch it it gives you goosebumps like it literally felt like the world series except it was just a regular season or, or conference game between texas and and oklahoma um they even paneled the the colors of shirts um in the stands where it was crimson and white so it really did kind of still feel like an oklahoma home game because all those fans are mainly there to see them and not texas but there were fans holly from all over New York, California, Florida, Washington, they listed out the different states that were represented that bought tickets and they came from all over. And I know too, that you kind of felt you're talking about basketball and the impact of that softball you feel like has had on, on basketball this season too. Yeah. I think it's interesting. Women's viewership sports um, attendance. So the NCAA women's basketball tournament just broke every attendance record for every round um, every ratings record for every round. And I think softball has already been on this track. And I want to just bring in um, Jenny, if you want to pop in on this topic really quick about you, you've been in this game for a long time. You've been playing in front of these crowds for a long time. What does this do for the student athletes to have people coming out like this to watch them? I mean, I remember playing when the Women's College World Series was not on TV and our final game was on TV, but it was edited for time and tape delayed. And so our scope of being able to reach young athletes and be leaders and strong young women that these young athletes could follow, it was hard to do. And so everyone felt like they were breaking a glass ceiling because they didn't have anyone to look to as an example. Being able to put these games on TV and have the viewership that we have just empowers our little girls to be able to become so much more because they have an idea of what it looks like. I love the phrase, if you can see it, you can be it. And we are giving our young women opportunities to see the, the things in front of them that I did not have. I felt like I was yeah. always the pioneer. And now you don't have to be a pioneer to be a young, amazing student athlete. Yeah, so I, I think it's really special. And I really believe our, our softball numbers are only going to go up. Our ratings are only going up. Our attendance is only going up. So athletic directors out there, take note, build bigger stadiums, invest in your softball programs, invest in your women's sports, because it's good business. You're also going to make money because more people are coming. Let's get to the softball part of it, Amanda. I don't think this series went exactly like we thought it would. I mean, I know Oklahoma is a juggernaut, the number one team in the country. I think I was a little surprised how um, non-competitive maybe it was. Yeah. Um, I mean, Texas 
had a legit chance to win game two on Saturday. And I know the score was like eight to one on Friday, but I think if you like invest in watch pitch by pitch in that game, there were a couple of big swings. Texas had a couple of miscues where eight one sometimes can just feel overwhelming. And other times it's like, wow, how is the score actually eight to one? And that to me is kind of how Friday game went. Um, Saturday, Texas had that chance to win. They took the lead into the seventh. And I think an interesting stat is that the past five games that these two teams have played going the champ series, Texas has scored first and has been unable to, to win any of those games. So um, I think that there was a pitching change that could have happened in the seventh inning. And I think that looking back, Mike White would have wanted to take Mac Morgan out before the seventh inning instead of a pitch too late after Jada Coleman hit the home run to tie it. So that was one of my takeaways. And then a couple of just, I know we know Tiare Jennings and Kenzie Hansen and Alyssa Brito, but I love Riley Boone in the ninth spot for Oklahoma. She's their left fielder, the defense that she plays, the speed that she brings to their lineup, the passion that she plays with. She's a player that you need to watch and oftentimes doesn't get talked about because of all the other big hitters on their team. Uh, another thing that I wanted to mention that I think, again, is kind of off the books, Sydney Sanders in game three got the game winning walk-off hit. She has not had a great offensive season compared to her freshman year at ASU, but I think that that hit could be a spark, a confidence mm. boost for her to make this Oklahoma lineup even deeper. So those are my two kind of off the books takeaway. We know a lot about Oklahoma and you could lay stat after stat after stat about them. But I thought that was kind of cool. And then one more thing, Holly, too. Jordy Ball was mentioned or was was uh, pitched in all three games. So that's another thing that stood out to me. She got the start and then relief and relief. So that to me is very telling about what Patty Gasso wants to do moving forward. Is Jordy Ball their ace or is it Nicole May or Alex Duraco? You use Jordy Ball all three games against the best team that you've played all year in a three game series. Then that looks to me like Jordy Ball is, is Patty Gasso's ace. Yeah, I want to drop a couple of stats on you. Jada Coleman hit her ninth home run of the season. Her freshman and sophomore seasons, just for comparison, she had nine and eight the total season. So she's off to a really good start. And I think that's big because Jada hasn't always been the focal point. Texas did score first in every game, got a home run from freshman Leanne Good and Viviana Martinez. So some positives for Texas. Um, And then before we go, just because, you know, we're coming off this huge rivalry game, a new NCAA regular season attendance record, but we also have a little controversy in the women's college basketball um, that I'm coming fresh off of. So we're going to go around really quick. Yes or no on trash talk in women's sports. Amanda, go. You You have 10 seconds or less to give me your best case on should women be talking trash in sports? Amanda. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I say yes. Yes. And I I just, yes. I, I say yes, but I'm not for following somebody around on the court and talking like, okay. The following. Not like directing the taunting at someone, but talk, have fun. But talk 100 competitive. Yes. All right. Kayla, Kayla came across as like quiet and like super nice. You were one of the fiercest uh, kind of mean competitors. If people really paid attention, what do you think? Yeah. You should have heard some of the stuff that I was saying inside my head, Holly. <laughs> um yeah I'm all about uh I I wouldn't have trash talked but I uh if that's what gets you going and that's what gets you fired up and ready to compete I'm all for it Madison Shipman I I think we all know my answer on this and I'm gonna go with yes so yeah I think we all kind of joke that maybe I'm a bit more verbal than uh Kayla on the field um but yeah I'm all I'm all for the passion the trash talk all of it I love it you were also demonstrative. And so that's something like, you know, we see the people get the hit and then they're pumping their fists and, and Jordy Ball, you know, got some praise, but also some criticism for her demonstrative behavior. Um, Jenny Dalton Hill. Yeah, I think the emotion of our game is the thing that embrace our fans embrace. And if you aren't engaged emotionally into our game, you're missing something. And I was one of those players that never spoke out to another player on the other team, but with my team, I was the foot stomp, the, not a big bat throw, not that, but definitely a stomp on the plate, pointing at my teammates, that kind of emotion I think is so important in our game. Okay. So as we, as we celebrate the biggest crowd in NCAA softball history, big numbers, big viewership, we are also celebrating big personalities, letting women be the competitors that they are. Yes. Across the board. Great segment. All right, let's move on. Moving on on our scorecard, you can follow along at Seven Innings Podcast, Balling Bruins, um, UCLA. This just looks like another stellar UCLA team, Stanford versus UCLA. This is a very improved 
Stanford team. And I just think it was really important the way UCLA came out and showed up. Aaliyah Jordan, of course, playing for it feels like her 700th year, but I will take all the Aaliyah Jordan I can ever get. Age ain't nothing but a number. That's a shout out to Aaliyah that she's named after. Um, she had a home run in the first game and UCLA swept this series. Tell me a little bit about what stood out to this in this series for you, Kayla. Yeah, first of all, I think this UCLA team was tired of hearing about how good the Stanford pitching staff was because they came out and in 21 innings only allowed one run. Wow. Yeah, I mean, that's big time. And Megan Faramo, I, I, you know, it's funny because she's always been good. She's always been really talented, but I just, I can't help but love watching her in the circle. She just has this fire and this, you talk about players to watch and being competitive and fist pumping it and showing your emotion on the field. Megan Faramo is a perfect example of this. And she plays with a passion that I think is so fun to watch. She's locked in every single pitch and you just can't help but look at her. She pitched in game one, seven innings, zero runs, 15 strikeouts. And then in game two, she came in in relief, three innings pitch, zero runs, two strikeouts as well. And then I thought on the other side of things, the rest of the pitching staff, Tinsley, Shaw, and Giannis kind of collectively brought it all together for this UCLA team. And, uh, you know, you mentioned Aaliyah Jordan, and I just want to say, like, I listened to her interview after their win against Sanford, Daniel Laurie, uh, and just was so happy because I could see the joy on her face and what it's like to return. She had couple home runs this weekend, really phenomenal performances that she's had late seven for 14 in her last at bats. Like just that's how she returns. Are you kidding me? And again, like you just love that kind of kid. She's gone through so much having to work through rehab, spending two years trying to get her ACL surgeries back up and like those legs working again. And you mentioned she's been there for seven years. What dedication, Jen, to that UCLA program. You know, um, Oh, sorry, Jen. I just was, I wanted to bring up one thing with you is yes, Aaliyah, remember her, she also had that elbow um, early in her career that she had to come back from as a young player. But um, talking about for Ramo's mindset, I, I just remember last year us really delving into her mental toughness and how she had studied Kobe and come along really as a mental competitor. I think she's taking it to the next level. What do you see? Oh, there's no doubt, Holly. And we're seeing her do it differently because UCLA has relied on her to be their ace. And there's no doubt she is, right? Game one, Kayla mentioned, shut out 15 Ks. But she had 10 innings of relief. This It's awesome that UCLA is getting to go to Brooke Yanez to start in two out of three games on the weekend. And they have Taylor Tinsley. One other thing to know is Aaliyah Jordan gets Pac-12 Player of the Week. That's only her second time ever getting it. She hasn't gotten it since her freshman year. UCLA has nine Pac-12 Player of the Week honors from six different players this year. So yeah, we have our keywords of Megan Faramo and Aaliyah Jordan and Megan Grant, but really you're seeing people from all over the lineup get it done. And I think that's what stands out mostly about this UCLA team compared to years of the past. We look at Stanford, we've got to tip our cap to them. They have some of the best ERAs in the country, but for them to only score one run, it's really tough to win ball games. And in my opinion, this was one of the biggest statements in college softball this weekend is UCLA sweeping Stanford and pretty much probably solidifying themselves as the Pac-12 champion. You know what I think is important in what you're describing is so like it's it's Oklahoma's world and everybody else is just living in it right now, right? Like there's such a clear number one. Um, you have to have balance and depth at, at and the because they're so deep. Oklahoma can just plug holes, fill holes, get get production from everywhere in the lineup. And I think that's what we're seeing UCLA build. Is that fair to say? Yeah. I think you have to tip your cap to Kelly I because I think in years past we haven't seen <clears throat> her feel comfortable allowing a Brooke Giannis to start or a Taylor Tinsley to start. And we haven't seen her really feel comfortable starting Lauren Carter in left field and mixing the lineup, right? You're seeing her mix the lineup like Patty and JT Gasso do. It's almost like she's taking a little page out of their book. Yeah. How about yeah. Like, let's oh, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. No, no. Hey, I wanted to shout out Lauren Carter. Uh, Anna Vines also had a really good weekend. Lauren Carter in game one was two for two with two RBIs. This is Big time hitting right there. And again, you need that depth in the lineup that you talked about, Holly. It can't just be the same. It can't be Maya Brady every single weekend. It's got to be somebody different. And that's the key for them moving moving forward in Pac-12 play. Okay, let's shout out a couple of other teams in the Pac-12 before we move on. I want to talk about Cal 
Um, they won their series against Utah. It's the first Pac-12 loss of the season for Utah. Coach Hogue was also ejected. Um, I'll get to the bottom of that and ask her why, but she's a fiery competitor that I love. So there's got to be a good story there. Um, Elon Butler had two homers for the Bears. I don't know if I'm saying that name right. Please correct me. Elon? Okay. Um, two home runs for the Bears, including the go-ahead blast in the sixth to take that rubber match. And Cal is four wins away from matching its season total from last year with two conference wins from matching its Pac-12 numbers. So why is Cal so much better? For me, it's Chelsea Spencer. You know, she's at the helm now, and I think that she's been able to develop their culture. Not only did they take a series from Utah, but that's their second series win in a row, like back-to-back weekends. Uh, So for me, it's Chelsea Spencer getting in some of her players, developing some of the older ones, and just really creating her culture. We all remember her as a player, fiery, tenacious, and Cal's taking on that personality a little bit. She was like that as an assistant coach at Oregon. And, you know, she has such long-standing roots and depth of knowledge in the pack. So I think this is interesting. It's it's good for her. One other thing to shout out, ASU won their series versus Washington, Coach Bartlett's first Pac-12 series win. And Savannah Price hit a grand slam in Sunday's game. Okay, let's move on. Number three on your lineup card, um, number one in your hearts, the Gamecocks chomp. This should be very interesting because South Carolina snapped a streak of 20 straight SEC series losses dating back to 2019 by winning two out of three versus Florida. I feel like this was kind of shocking. Um, Let's bring in now Jenny and Madison. Madison, let's start with you. Tell me about your reaction to how the Gators and South Carolina series went. Well, hearing the stat that that was the first win for South Carolina in SEC play against Florida since 2003 really stood out to me. I I just could not believe that when I saw that stat. But watching South Carolina, I think that they are much improved from last year. And I like the way that they utilize their pitching staff. And I know we've already talked about how you can't just rely on one ace. But when I look at the way they've used their pitching staff, they have six pitchers. The minimum amount of innings that one of the pitchers has thrown is 25, which is still a pretty substantial amount. So they've got six different pitchers that they are throwing consistently. And you know, I'm going to give you some nuggets about Donnie Goborn and how great she was. Those 15 strikeouts against Florida in game three. And she's somebody who I, I just pumps such good velocity in there consistently. I mean, I'm talking 70, 71, 72 from inning one to inning seven and her ability to mix it throughout the zone. She's also kind of effectively wild. And I don't know about you guys, but those were my least favorite pitchers to hit off of when I felt like they didn't really know where it was going sometimes, then it made me a little bit more hesitant in the box, especially when they're bringing in that really good velocity. Um, One other thing to note too, I think that they play really good defense as a team. They've only made 18 errors this season. Uh, Brooke Blankenship does a really good job for them at shortstop and they got hitting top to bottom. Uh, Zoe Leno has a really good swing. She had a great weekend. Uh, Riley Blampede is another one. And I look at their their coaching staff too. And I think they've had uh, some, the past couple of seasons, they've made some changes, but they ended up getting a hitting coach coming over from Duke, uh, Josh Bloomer uh, coming over. And I think he's done a really good job offensively for them. And that's why they were able to come out with that win against Florida this weekend. But Jenny, I'm sure you saw some other things that I didn't from this past weekend. I don't know. We both see the game through a hitter's perspective. And so I definitely had my eye on Donnie Goborn for South Carolina. I actually texted Josh Bloomer and said, okay, what's going on? What's the deal? He said that Donnie hit 75 miles an hour in that series. And I don't know what that looks like in the box. I've never faced that kind of speed, but I you can't see it. That's how you, (laughs) you don't know it because you can't see it coming in that fast. Exactly. Holly, but I did face Michelle Granger and Michelle Granger threw in the low seventies and did not have the kind of trust in her pitches that I like to see in a pitcher. You didn't know if you were going to wear it in the head or in the body, or if it was going to be way outside, or if it was going to be piped right down the middle. And having trust in a pitcher in the circle is one of the things that big hitters rely on. So when you've got that Ricky Vaughn taking the circle that you don't know where it's going to go, it's definitely hard to dig in. Maddie, what do you think? 
Yeah, you know, what? one thing I look at, too, because I think when you look across the board and you see the radar guns, you see people popping 69, 70, 71. The one thing that I look for are, is how are people swinging against those types of velocities? Are they really late? Are they consistently late on their swings? And this past weekend, even take somebody like a Charlotte Eccles, who I think has some of the quickest hands in the game for Florida. She was consistently late on her swing. So that's telling me that Goborn is popping in some really good velocity in there. You're right. Plus, I think location, right? Is if you're, I think hesitation is bred by, I don't, I don't know if I can lean in. I don't know. You know what I mean? I think hesitation is part of that. Yeah. And to your point, Holly, too, she's not afraid to come inside. And we all know that the pitches, when they're coming 71, 72 miles per hour, if they're coming inside, they're going to feel even faster than if those pitches were outside. You can almost get away with being a little bit late on your swings on the outside pitches versus the pitches that are on the inner half of the zone. Right. And Florida was using their leg kick or their stride step as their timing mechanism and their stride step, that timing mechanism was off. And that's either because they don't trust the pitch or they're being fooled by the velocity being thrown. I was never one to have a big leg kick because of timing. And so, yes, balance comes into it and everything else as a hitter. But when that stride foot is late to toe touch, you are going to be off regardless of what pitch is coming into the, into the strike zone. Um, That's a great point. There's a couple of other teams though, that in the sec that had a little stumble this week and Tennessee was one of them against Texas A&M defining moment. I think for Texas A&M this weekend on Saturday, they beat the top of the sec. The lady Vols fell three to one, and it was an impressive showing by the ASU transfer Madison Preston. She threw six innings in that game, had eight strikeouts, gave up only two walks. And after the game, we interviewed her and one of the coolest interviews I've ever been able to do because we had her pick up her little daughter, Kindry, and do the interview with her in her arms. Um, it was the longest outing of her season after two years of being out of the circle. she transferred to ASU, did not play at ASU, started her career at Alabama, and then took that break to be able to have Kendry transferred with Trisha Ford. And uh, she was able to baffle the Tennessee hitters, only gave up two hits, just an impressive showing for Madison Preston. And Texas A&M, remember, was the, is the only team on the season who has out hit Oklahoma. So they didn't win the game, but they had more hits in the game. So Texas A&M is figuring some things out. I'm excited to see where this program goes under Trisha Ford. Okay, give me 15 seconds here. Alabama got their first SEC series win of the season versus Missouri. Fouts was good, 245 pitches, 26 Ks. Um, Arkansas also won their 10th straight SEC road series wins after last weekend's win versus Mississippi State. And Kentucky snapped Georgia's 11-game win streak. Um, So just a couple other SEC notes before we move on. Okay, on your lineup card, this one should be bolded, capitalized, underlined, highlighted, whatever you want to say. Um, The NIL state of the state and NIL is, I was talking to a lady last week and she called it nil. I was like, oh my gosh, no. Um, Name, image, and likeness. And what this basically is for people who are new to that is, you know, for many, many years, for as long as we've had the NCAA, players could not get paid to endorse products and use their name, image, or likeness to endorse something and gain revenue off of their, their likeness. Now the laws have changed. We're doing it. I have seen some really intriguing things happening in basketball with this. Um, Some of our biggest name image and likeness earners in women's basketball in the NCAA tournament, they all lost. And I was really intrigued by watching how many ads, how many shoots, all of this stuff leading up to the final four and to the, um, you know, sweet 16 And I just couldn't help but think, I wonder how NIL is impacting the competitive nature and focus of student athletes, one. But we also have um, more legislation going on where there's a hearing in the House of Representatives. They're trying to get a federal law to, um, gosh, what's the word I'm looking for? Make it the same everywhere. So what happened was every state, because because Congress and the federal government would not enact federal legislation that would make it. Um, They want to make uniform rules, but right now we have rules from state to state. So California was the first state. Florida was the first state. Texas got on board quickly, but these are all different in every state. So 
let's start with you, Jen. One, tell me where you see NIL right now in softball and what needs to change. Ooh, okay. So I went ahead, I just looked at Jocelyn Allo from last year because I feel like she's a good case study because she's done. And, and I reached out to Chelsea Day, her management team, and I was like, hey, give me some numbers. What can you share with me? And these are just pretty, like, these are factual data numbers that last year, LC management with their six athletes did 1.2 million in endorsement deals for them. With Jocelyn going into the postseason, their strategy was to raise her price by three times the amount. So in postseason, whatever she was charging, she raised that by three times her amount in the postseason. I think it's interesting when you look at female athletics, because for so long, all of us who played college sports here, we played college sports and then we maybe got to play some professional ball, but endorsement deals weren't really uh, for us, like, like our male counterparts. You know, I went to school at UCLA and I'm looking at Jordan Farmar, who's going to play for the Lakers and Kevin Love and Russell Westbrook. And, and these men leave college and they make millions and millions of dollars. And we've always looked around and we've never been able to do that as female athletes. And so I think it is unbelievably cool that these women have opportunities to make life-changing money in college that can set themselves up for a different type of life than they maybe could have ever dreamed of without going to a corporate job or, you know, or really working for it. They can rely on their talent in college to maximize income. Now, what needs to change, Holly? I agree with you. I think state to state, there needs to be some sort of uniformity. And I always think information is power. I, I mean, I would love for these athletes to share their data with everyone so that there could be some sort of standardization. I know that's kind of taboo because even, even now, like endorsement deals aren't shared with people, but I feel like from a data point, it would re be really nice to have some sort of standard. I don't know. What do you think, Maddie or Holly? Do you have any thoughts on yeah, that? I was going to ask Kayla. I was going to put Kayla on the spot because Alabama, you know, we heard a lot about um, Montana Fouts and how much she was making last year and whether or not that was creating issues within the team. I, I don't know. I don't have the answers to that, but I'm just curious what you know from your experience, you know, kind of being connected and tied in with Alabama. Yeah, first of all, uh, from everything that I hear on Montana Fouts specifically, she's like the most humble, nice, gracious, like, teammate team oriented kid so in that respect I have not heard an ounce of grumbling from anybody in the program that the NIL is in any way shape or form impeding her ability to play or be a good teammate so that makes me feel really good inside because somebody like a Montana Fouts and these incredible women like Jen like you're talking about they should have the opportunity to use their talents to help them pursue uh, something really great beyond softball, because we all know that professionally softball just doesn't uh, provide the kind of income that you need to live on and be successful. So if you're able to create that somewhere else, I think that's really important. And, you know, you know, we talk a lot about the big names like Montana Fouts, but for some of these other players that aren't going to make that elite level money, I think it's really great that they can put their names associated with camps and clinics and working with kids and helping the next great generation. Point. I think that's so cool too, because that was something that we couldn't do when we all played. Like you couldn't say I was working a camp, like you couldn't have any affiliation with your school. You couldn't like market yourself at all. And that prevented, you know, some players like us from trying to go and, and not only help other people, but again, you can't have a job when you're playing softball in college. It's too much work. It's too much time, too much energy. So you got to figure out a way in the summer to make some money. That would have been a great opportunity, but I think uh, there needs Needs, needs to be some things worked out. And I don't really know, kind of goes over my head to be quite honest, all of the legislation that's going to be tied to it. But I, I think that there needs to be some kind of uniformity because it's too much to ask for each of these athletes state to state to understand all, all of the rules and inner workings of the NIL. Maddie, what you got? Yeah, I, I would say I, I tried, I've been poring over the internet the past couple of days to try to understand a little bit more of the legislation. And because I'm having to bring out a dictionary just to understand the articles that I'm reading, I feel like I need to be better educated about these sorts of things before I get into just a massive discussion about them. But I do think we started off this podcast talking about the growth of women's sports and, and how people have just paved the way. I am so glad that these athletes are now able to make some money while they're playing. And I know, Kayla, you and I have talked about, I feel like we talk about a lot about the 1% of the earners as far as NIL, but there are so many other athletes out there that are benefiting maybe just a little bit, maybe to help with books or maybe to help with a class or just paying with some tuition. Those are the athletes that I really think that this has benefited 
substantially things that maybe get swept under the rug that we don't hear about a ton, but they're the players that I really think have benefited from this NIL a lot. Well, and I, I think a student athlete 100% should be paid for their personal name, image, and likeness. But some of the issues that this is facing is schools are using it as a recruiting enticement. Athletes are being promised money, which is a recruiting enticement. That's pay for play. Pay for play is a problem. That is being brokered by a third-party agency and can manage your deals. Those brokers are allowed. However, to be in the recruiting process and have a coach or, sorry, a broker tell you, well, if you go to this school, I can get you $300,000. Now, in the softball world, that's probably not going to happen. You're seeing that more in the football and basketball world for men. However, that's going to leak into our sport, too. Don't tell me that Oklahoma doesn't have fans that would 100% jump on that train and say, oh, is that the best player in the country? Get her. I'll pay her to be It's already happening. I promise you it's already happening. It is. And you shouldn't be paid to just show up. You should be paid for your name, image, and likeness. That is unique to you. That is the piece of you that you are able to market. However, the collected collectives are creating these pools of money to pay student athletes. And that's the piece that's not being monitored. And federal legislation, I think, definitely needs to step in and regulate that part of NIL. Yeah, so that that hearing at the House of Representatives last week, um, I thought it was interesting. Kaylee Mudge went and testified, and Mudge argued in favor of having a federal law on the books because there's a lack of transparency in the contract deals, and that hurts the ability for athletes to determine their true market value when negotiating those. And she's a great case because she's trying to earn money for nursing school when she's done playing. You know, these athletes have specific goals in mind, and I, I will tell you what I've seen in all the other sports I cover. We've had a couple of situations. So one that I liked that was positive, CJ Stroud, the quarterback at Ohio State, one of the top earners in NIL this year, he gave it to his teammates. So he gave money and made sure that the company he signed with dispersed that money to every single teammate. So they got something from his NIL deal. I thought that was really smart. Angel Reese that we just saw for LSU women's basketball. She is the number one female earner in the NIL space right now in women's basketball. She got a deal with coach handbags. She hooked up everybody on the team and made sure they all got a piece of that. So I think there's some really cool things. Like maybe I'm the name of this sport and I'm the person that's drawing all the eyes. Like I'll use Montana as an example. Well, I can use my popularity to, to spread that wealth and make sure that my teammates are taken care of. I think that's an important way to to avoid issues within the team. Um, I think what you're delineating, Jenny, is very important that being paid for your name, image, and likeness shouldn't be, be for showing up. We saw this happen with Spencer Rattler at Oklahoma. He he was going to be the front runner and the Heisman runner, front runner. He didn't play well. He got pulled as the starter and they'd already given him all this money. So those businesses were out. So I think there's got to be some, I don't want to say production tied to it because then that'll put a lot of anxiety on kids. What do you think if there's deals that are like Madison Shipman, if you hit, you know, six home runs, you're going to get more in your NIL deal. Like, how do we feel about it being tied to performance? You know, I think it's interesting because I try to, I I put myself like how I felt playing in the professional league where I was being paid to play and putting myself into the college athlete mindset too. And that's a lot of pressure. It's a lot of pressure to deal with, especially when you're 18 to 21 years old. And, and that's the part that, that, I think is the hardest for me to really understand what these athletes are going through with managing that amount of money. Like when I went to school, I knew I was where I had to go to class. I had to figure out a way to be successful in the classroom, be successful on the field. And that was really the extent of the, the worries on my mind. And now we've got all of these real life things that these athletes are now having to juggle. That's the part that, that I think has been, Uh, interesting for me to cover just to try to get some of their mindsets and how they do handle those things on a day-to-day basis. I think it's, it's leveled the playing field for women financially in a wonderful way. Businesses get to choose who to invest in instead of just giving money to the schools and they're choosing women a lot. And I think that's good. I do want to give one other shout out to Oklahoma. Um, They were really smart. I remember last year being at a game and they're selling Jocelyn Allo merchandise outside of the, you know, right on the concourse. And the school had partnered with Jocelyn and her brand that you can sell it and you can use all your Oklahoma gear and trademarks and all that stuff 
we're going to partner. So we might take a small percentage, but we're going to let you do it here at our venue. So I thought that was also very important and smart. All right, we got to go. Let's move on. Good, good discussion. And we'll keep this discussion because that is an ever-changing world for NIL. Some good points to bring up and think about. All right, let's move on. Next on the lineup. Number five on our lineup card this week is the clash in Clemson. I continue to be so proud um, of, of Coach and how he has built this program. I mean, I literally went there a couple of years ago and I had to wear a hard hat to tour their facility during football season. This was three years ago. I'm just so blown away by, by what they have built in Clemson. They are still the only undefeated team in the ACC in conference play. They swept BC this weekend and they've won 22 straight games and shut out opponents 16 times this season. So Amanda, Valerie Cagle is doing Valerie Cagle things. What do you see with Clemson right now and, and the big time matchup they have this weekend? You've asked us last minute or spontaneous questions. So I need to know how many hard hats you've ever worn in your career. Um, I've probably worn four or five. I've toured quite a few facilities, you know, like that are being built Miami football. Yeah. Um, gosh, but Clemson football or Clemson softball was maybe the longest one because, and it was very undone stadium when I toured it. Um, and that was cool. Texas A&M, we toured Texas A&M softball before that was finished. So I don't know, probably five. Yeah. I I thought that number was going to be closer to 20 Holly. I feel like I've seen you in a hard hat a lot actually. So I think you're underestimating your hard hat abilities there, but you're all over the place. And I mean, seriously, what Clemson's been able to do in just a few years, it's like, it is electric. And I feel like they entered this season with women's college world series, hopes and goals and dreams, but they're not just talking the talk. They're walking the walk and you can feel it with the way that they play with their culture, the way that they take pride in every win they go in and hang a, a win number in their locker room. I saw it on social media and like, they're so proud and motivated to get to the women's college world series. I mean, of course we're still weeks away from doing that, but I think that this weekend against Florida state would make an even bigger exclamation mark and their vision and and even more energy and motivation for them. I mean, FSU is playing at Clemson for the first time. This will be the biggest test for both teams all year. It's a top 10 matchup. Um, and the home field advantage goes to Clemson. I mean, the, the home field crowd that they get, they sold out their season tickets. They added extra seats for this series. You know, that that stadium is going to be rocking. Um, and I feel like this, I don't know. I feel like this might go Clemson's way. Um, you mentioned it, Holly, Valerie Cagle is a huge part of their success, but I like their transfers that they brought in. Caroline Jacobson, Reedy Davenport, and Allie Micklish. They're a really big part of this team to be able to build them and make them stronger than they were last year to take that next step. Yeah, I went to one of their fall exhibitions and I just was really impressed with Clemson. And, you know, they were trying to build some depth around Valerie Cagle so she's not having to do everything. You know, I think the era and... I don't know, Jen, maybe you pipe in on this. I think the era of us seeing one ace be able to carry a team all the way through to a World Series, I think those days are over. Does she need more help or how do you see that going? Yeah, I think that the days of one ace is are over. You know, I, I got to watch Kira Girl throw out the first pitch at UCLA this past weekend. So when you say that, I immediately think of her. She's the only pitcher to throw a perfect game in the champ series at the World Series ever. And I look back and it's, I mean, it's not really since Jenny Ritter and Taryn Moat, like since those names have played, we haven't seen it. And even if you're looking at Oklahoma and what they're doing, they're throwing legitimately three pitchers. And so I think with the amount of time, the games are going longer. The bat technology is tougher. We have so much video analysis. I I think that the day and age of being able to ride one pitcher is gone. Well, and Jenny Dalton Hill, I want to ask you about this because I think the video component is it is it's easier to kind of crack the code on a pitcher. So once, once you know their stuff or once teams are hitting them, you have to have a staff to make a switch, right? You definitely have to have a staff to make a switch, but I think it's so important for pitchers from year to year to kind of evolve and redefine what they need to do to be better. There's always a pitch in your arsenal that's not its best. It's a weak pitch and teams know that you don't go to it very often. So to be able to throw in a new pitch, to be able to step in the off season and hammer out that change up, that rise ball to expand your repertoire as a pitcher, so important. And I think it goes unstated that Valerie Cagle had played hurt the past couple of seasons. And because she was hurt, she was not able to put up the numbers that she knew she was capable of. However, all of us were wide-eyed and 
so excited because she was throwing up these big numbers. But this year, she has her best batting average of her career. She's hitting 481. She's on pace to break her single season home run number. She's got 13, but she had her number 17 that she's trying to break. Highest slugging, highest on-base percentage has cut her ERA by more than half. So what you're seeing is a healthy Valerie Cagle setting a bar extremely high. And if this Clemson team is able to take the next step, which is their team motto this year, the next step, if they're able to do that and make it to Oklahoma City, I'm going to hang my hat on Valerie Cagle as player of the year. That's a good call. We can't sleep on Florida State, though, right? Because Lonnie Alameda, we know Coach, Coach uh, she always has the team ready to go. Um, they are super competitive. They have great pitching right now. What do we think about where Florida State is? They come off a weekend where they swept Georgia Tech, two mercy rule ones, runs. And remember, they did sweep Clemson in this series last year. Good reminder. And I feel like they're always so well prepared and well coached. Like they prepare so well for a pitcher. And you guys were talking about not just leaning on one ace all the time. Florida State has actually thrown seven pitchers this year. So being able to make a deeper pitching staff around Kat Sandercock, who has thrown really, really well, but they've not just relied on her, although she's still one of the best pitchers in the country. And Jenny, um, offensively for Florida State, I know that Michaela Edenfield is starting to come around this month. Yeah, it's so exciting to see Michaela Enfield just come into her own. She's been the big power hitter for Florida State since stepping on campus as a freshman. But this is a team. Florida State seems to take a really long time evolving into what kind of scoring profile they have in a season. We always know that they have speed. They steal a lot of bases. However, getting the key hit in the key moment has eluded them at times and added to those that loss category for Florida State. So while Michaela Enfield does bring the big bopper, she swings a big stick, has a lot of home runs. They even named that area out in left field, Area 51, for the long ball potential that she always brings. But I think the key for Florida State is just that continual evolution of what kind of scoring profile they will have. If they do not rely on the long ball like they did three or four years ago. This is definitely a team that relies one through nine on a key hit and racking up doubles to be able to score the runs. Okay, we do have one quick um, announcement about the Clemson series. They are now going to play a double double header. Game one will be on the ACC network at 3 p.m. Eastern. ESPN Talent will do that. And then game two will be on the ACC network at 6 p.m. Eastern. Can't wait. That is going to be the best one. And Holly, before you move on out of the ACC, I think something that's really important that we need to talk about is that at Virginia Tech, as of yesterday, Doug Gillis, the pitching coach for Virginia Tech, has been removed as an active member of the staff. That is important because Emma Lemley, who is the clear ace on that staff, who was developed so well from last year to this year, She needs help and she needs guidance. She is not able to carry this team on her shoulders. And without a pitching coach, I feel like this Virginia Tech squad, they're going to struggle going down the stretch. They swing the bat really big, lots of home runs, very talented, but their offense has to be able to out hit their pitching. And my concern for Virginia Tech is what they're going to do without Doug Gillis. Do we know what happened Why he's been removed? Um, The athletic director, Whit Babcock, stated he felt it was best for Gillis to no longer be on staff. And that is all the statement that is being given by Virginia Tech. Okay, well, we'll try to get more information. Holly, he hasn't been in the dugout all year, so he hasn't been with them all year. But the official statement has just come out. And and before Kayla brought up a good stat when we were offline before we started that Emma Lemley gave up 12 home runs last year, and she's already given up 20 home runs this year already. Oh, okay. Well, stay tuned. That's going to be interesting. Let's, let's dig into that more. Maybe next week I'll do some research too. I wasn't on top of that. So good job. All right. Checking out number six on your lineup card. How about those Hoosiers? Have we ever talked about Indiana softball? on the seven innings podcast. (laughs) And if not, we're going to right now because they have set a new school record with their 21st straight win. Um, They are also the only big 10 team still undefeated in conference play. Of course, they'll be playing by the time this comes out. So hopefully that doesn't change. All right. Who wants to get in on this? Madison, let's start with you. How about the Hoosiers? 
I've been so impressed with them. Honestly, I think that they've made a big turnaround from where we all saw them in Clearwater at the beginning of the season. And one thing that's common um, amongst the coaches that go to that tournament, they say that it really prepares them for the stretch of the rest of the season, especially the postseason, because they are playing top ranked competition straight out the gate. They did not have a good uh, uh, showing down there in Clearwater. They lost all five of their games, but since then they have been fantastic. And they have some players that have stepped up for them, too. Cora Bassett, somebody coming back for her sophomore year, has been great. Uh, Bree Copeland's another one that you guys need to watch, a two-way player. She's great in the circle, throws some good heat in there, but also she's uh, fantastic up at the plate. But another freshman that I don't think we have talked about enough on this podcast is Taryn Kern, and already 15 home runs on the season. And one thing that sticks out to me when I watch her approach at the plate is how close she stands to the plate. I mean, she her toes are all over that chalk line. She's basically baiting pitchers to throw her an inside pitch, and she can turn on it, but she's also very disciplined on the outer half of the plate, too. And I thought that was very interesting that she'll adjust about six inches closer to the plate sometimes, a little bit off, but all in all, she's very much crowding the plate. And it, to me, it's a direct challenge to those pitchers in the circle. All right, I shorted them one win. They've got 22 straight. Jen, tell me what you like. Maddie Kern is fearless. I noticed the same thing you did with her toes on the chalk and the way that she takes her hacks. She actually had her 16th home run last night too. So they're 22 and 0 program streak right now. Copeland 13 and 0 in the circle. Another name you mentioned, two-way player. But I want to talk about Shonda Stanton because their leader, their head coach, when you talk to any player who has gotten to play for her, they have nothing but fantastic things to say. It kind of reminds me about what people say about Courtney Dyfel and how she really changes who you are, not only within the white lines, but outside of the white lines. And I think that the culture that she's set at Indiana and the way that she's able to connect with her players really goes a long way. And and I think that's the difference maker and, and maybe why we haven't been talking about them on this podcast, Holly. You know, you look at their growth, Maddie, you talk about them at Clearwater, not winning a game, going 0-5. And, and I feel like that, what we just mentioned on the season, 0-5 to 22-0, is kind of what Indiana has done for the last five years as a program. Now, they're the only team in the Big Ten that's undefeated in conference play, but they do, they do go play Minnesota this weekend in Minnesota. So I'm interested. I'm going to keep my eye on, on that series because I, I'm not saying they're going to lose, but I but I feel like this may be one of the most competitive uh, co- competitive series for them. Now, my question is, Maddie, to you, do you feel like the Michigans not being as strong has eluded for another team like Indiana to kind of come through the Big Ten? And is it their time, maybe? You know, I think so. I I think coming into the season, we all kind of, you know, thought that Michigan was going to just be trying to find their way this year. And I think that's this so far this season, it's kind of proven that. But the one team that I guess has surprised me a little bit is Northwestern, because coming into this year, I really thought it was uh, the the conference was going to be Northwestern's and theirs to run away with just because they have so many veterans on that team. Daniel Williams in the circle, of course, we all know. Uh, Skylar Shellmeyer, another one. They're having good seasons individually. They just lost some games here and there. So um, I think it's important to note, too, that Indiana and Northwestern don't actually play head-to-head this year, which is I'm selfishly uh, upset about that because I'd love to see them go head-to-head. Um, but the one series, I know you mentioned you're looking forward to watching Indiana play Minnesota coming up. I'm looking forward to seeing them play Nebraska the following weekend because I think Nebraska is another sneaky good team too that's that's off to a really good start this year too. Okay, we're 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 powering on quickly. Really good stuff on Indiana. Who's your who's your daddy? The Hoosiers of Indiana. Can I say that on a podcast? That sounded weird. Okay. Who's your mama? It's the Hoosiers. All right. Northwestern, they did win their series against Iowa a 10 inning game on Saturday. That's a good note. Moving on, a shocking upset. Let's go. Kayla, tell us about the shocking upset from the Shockers. Yeah, Oklahoma State, the number two ranked team in the nation, came to town and Wichita State pulled off the upset. And it was a hit fest, Holly. 24 hits combined, 15 runs. And you know what's interesting about that? There was only three extra base hits. So, you know, these are teams that can hit the long ball, but there was only three extra. That means there was 21 singles in this game. It was like death by a thousand paper cuts for both of these schools. And, and you know, it was interesting because I think about the game within the game and you have the two best leadoff hitters in the country, Sydney McKinney going against Rachel Becker, Wichita State 
Sydney McKinney leading the nation in batting average, Rachel Becker, really, really close. And it was so cool to see them. And guess what? In this ball game, I thought this was fascinating. They each went two for four with one run scored and one RBI. Like they matched each other. That's the kind of competition that I, I love to see in a game like this. But which is also were you there. a leadoff batter? Could you remember? Uh, you I don't know. Maybe yeah. okay. maybe I'm a little bit biased okay. to these amazing <laughs> leadoff hitters that are just so important that really set the tone for the, the entire setters. That's right. Uh, yeah. So, you know, we talk about Cindy McKinney and players like that, but uh, big factors in the win and Wichita State's recent success. I got to shout out hitters like Zoe Jones, two for four in that ball game, one RBI in their last game, their last eight games. Zoe Jones has hit 500. She's hit four home runs, 13 hits, 13 RBIs. And in that span, they've won seven of their eight. They beat UCF in a series. They swept USF, which is a huge deal when you talk about the American Athletic Conference and where they're going to be at the end of the season, because Wichita State's hungry for that regular season title last year after falling short a season ago. Uh, And getting that win against Oklahoma State, I think, is a huge, huge catapult for them, Holly. Yeah, it's really interesting. So um, Sydney McKinney, she's up to 350 hits in 227 games. That is 16th on the career Division I list. She needs nine more hits to break into the top 10. Uh, the record is 405. So I just wanted to tell you some of the names on this sheet. That's Allison McCutcheon from Arizona holds that record. I think you know a little something about her, JDH. Laura Berg, Fresno State. Natasha Washley, UCLA. Nicole Barber, Georgia. Kelly Kretschman, Alabama. Janae Jefferson, Lindsay Schutzler. I mean, this is the who's who of hitting in college softball history. And, and she's going to make her way up that list. So I think that's good perspective of just how good Sydney has been is like, she, she's going to be in the who's who of, of hitters in division one, which I think is cool. Holly, you're not going to tell everybody who she just passed for all time hits in her career. I didn't want to, I didn't want to hurt your feelings. (laughs) Was it you? Can I, can I just say that I actually had no idea where I was on the all time hits and so when our producer, Robin, was like, oh, she just passed Caleb Bro," and my name was tied with Jocelyn Allo, apparently Jocelyn Allo and I ended up with the same exact number of career hits. I was like, 343. Yeah, Look at you. Right there with Allo. Like that, that made me feel great. I had no idea. So, but guess what? Do you want it? Do you want another good stat? Yeah. You did it in fewer games. It took Jocelyn Allo 267 games to get those 340 hits. Our Caleb Bro did it in 252 games. Gosh. All right. I, my bucket is filled for the day, everyone. Thank you. Thank all you. Right. Your, your okay. home run numbers were close too. Kayla. My home run numbers were really, really close. Yeah. Like I think I'm like, you know, third all time on, you know, so, so I'm right up there. Don't even worry. Don't, you don't even have to look it up. I'm glad you brought that up because I really just didn't want to hurt your feelings, but I should have known that you're a baller and your feelings could not be hurt. That's amazing. Oh, uh, it, it's a lot of fun. You know, Wichita State, people don't know. They've had a good program for a long time. I don't know that they've kind of broken through to the national consciousness. Um, I remember back in the day, I think it was where Samantha Ricketts got her start coaching. Do you, what, what's in my brain? I remember one of the Rickett sisters was coaching at Wichita State back in the day. I remember running into her when I was out there for a game, but they've been good for a while. I think this is cool um, to see them kind of on the big stage. All right. It is time now for Jagan Stats. Jen, let's start with you. There's only one player in the country who has hit at least 15 home runs, is hitting over 500 and has 50 plus RBIs. She actually has 58. She's from a mid-major. Her name's Autumn Owen. She plays for Marshall. And of course, she's a catcher. (laughs) You are a consistent catcher supporter, which I always love. I am. All right. Go, Kayla. What do you got? All right. um, There is one player that sits above the rest in terms of hardest to strike out, and that's Emma Ritter from Virginia Tech. She has no strikeouts on the season, you guys. In 117 at-bats, that's ridiculous to not strike out at all this season. She only has 11 walks too, so she puts the ball in play a lot. 10 home runs on the year, 10 doubles as well. I'm so glad I had a backup stat because that was mine too. So thank you, Kayla. I appreciate that. Uh, This one, I I don't know if it's going to fall under the category of a shagging stat, but I'm going with it anyway. So Jen, correct me if I'm wrong here, but Jordan Woolery, Megan Grant, both freshmen for UCLA, Aaliyah Jordan in her seventh year. When Aaliyah Jordan was a freshman in college, 
both Jordan Woolery and Megan Grant were in seventh grade, and now they're in the same lineup together. Is that not just mind-blowing? That's all I kept thinking when I was watching the games. I was listening to your broadcast, Jen, this past weekend. That's all I kept thinking was seventh grade was when, or when Megan Grant and Jordan Woolery were in seventh grade was Aaliyah Jordan's freshman year in college. Question, do we know what Aaliyah is doing in school? Is she going to graduate with her PhD? Like, seriously, what is she doing academically? We're going to call her Dr. Aaliyah Jordan? (laughs) Dr. Jordan. It sounds good, but I I don't think we will be calling her that. (laughs) I mean, seven years, you've got to come away with like four masters and a couple of bachelors at least. Um, Okay, Jenny Dalton Hill, what's your second step? Or just keep milking it for the scholarship check. Okay, I didn't say that out loud. So when it comes to my shagging stat, the number's 34, and here's why. This last weekend, Maryland softball swept Michigan State, and this is the first time in program history that Maryland has ever recorded three shutouts in Big Ten play. They outscored them 22 to nothing, and this is the best 34-game start ever by the Terps. They are 26-8. and I'm going to say this. I feel like, you know, you guys were talking about the Big Ten. Some of the the usual suspects are down a little bit this year. But I think the ACC, we have seen this, I would say, the last two and three years. I think we're seeing it in the Big Ten is there is more depth. So Illinois improving in the Big Ten. We just talked about Indiana. I feel like those are conferences where we're seeing softball um, go deeper and stronger than just having a couple of good teams at the top. Do you agree? I 100% agree with you, Holly. The depth is just, it's so much deeper. <laughs> I'm looking at a box of five well, like, people just also, nodding. I'm like, you what? also see, like, it's not just the Big Ten gaining ground because of the play of those bottom teams within their conference. The ACC has been aided by the, the addition of Duke and Clemson. You're seeing it, the, dis, the disparity of talent is evening out and now these teams are able to push from the bottom of their conferences all the way through the top I'm so in love with the way that you don't know who's going to win when the teams take the field anymore it's not just one team and everybody else within a conference yes yeah, really good competitive balance that's great all right that was shagging stats let's now turn to our mailbag number nine on your scorecard let's see um from Ben Frey, is there any team that can break Oklahoma or that can beat Oklahoma twice? We know Baylor did once, but can they beat them again? Who wants to answer Ben's question? I'll take a crack at it. Um, you know, Kayla. My, yeah, my my head says no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you That's know, a problem in a champ series, right? At the World Series, if somebody can't beat them twice. You're exactly right. Uh, the way I think, I, I've thought about this a lot in my head, like how is Oklahoma not going to be in the champ series this year? And it's very slim chance, but the way that somebody else unseeds Oklahoma as the number one team, they need two different teams to beat them. Like you're in the women's college world series. I need Valerie Cagle to beat her one game to kick them into the loser's bracket. And then Ashley Rogers to go beat them in game two. Like that's the way I see it playing out, not back to back because as we've seen Oklahoma gets pissed off when they lose and they take it out on their next opponent. So if you beat them once, like, look out, they're coming for you in the next game. Okay. I'm going to send this one to you, Maddie. This is from Bryce Riddle. Who is your front runner right now? Well, actually let's everybody, let's everybody do this. I think this is a good one to go around the horn on. Bryce Riddle asks, who is your front runner right now for the USA softball collegiate player of the year? Maddie, let's start with you. The front runner for me is Valerie Cagle because just everything all the way around, whether it's in the circle up at the plate, I, I, I think in my mind, she's the first player that pops to, to mind when it comes to collegiate player of the year. How about you, Jen? Same. It's Valerie Cagle right now. Now I'll be interested if they have an early exit, say in regionals, and she doesn't advance to a super regional, then I'll be interested if uh, Maya Brady gets a sniff. A lot of people are saying Jada Coleman, but when you look at her overall holistic numbers, her RBIs are really low. I mean, she has nine home runs. So I don't quite know if it's her for me. Um, I say Valerie Cagle is a front runner, but early exit could change things. All right, Jenny Dalton Hill, who you got? Yeah, I've already put my cap on Val. I think that she really is the all-around player. And I know a lot of times in years past, they give that 
award to a pitcher who maybe isn't a hitter if she's been dominant in the circle. And that's always a hard pill for me to swallow, not because they're not amazing at what they do, but I'm looking for a player of the year to be well-rounded. And so, yes, pitchers are amazing athletes. However, I want to see a pitcher who hits and Val Cagle checks that box for me. Yeah, she's hitting over 400. Um, I think I think your, all, your argument for all-around player of the year and we've seen it go that way a lot. I mean, it went to a hitter last couple of years with Jocelyn, but we've seen it go to the hitting pitcher quite a bit. I, I, I mean, I would say, I would say maybe 50% of the time, that's just off my head. We've seen it go to that hitting pitcher, Rachel Garcia, you know, all, all those types of players um, back in the day. All right, Kayla, who do you have? Yeah, you know, uh, I think what's crazy about Valerie Cagle is if you independently looked at only her pitching staff stats or only her hitting stats, she would probably still be up there for consideration for National Player of the Year. That's what's crazy. So you combine them, and that's just what sets her apart from everybody else. But, you know, the one person, and Jen, you just mentioned her and her sh- your shagging stats, like Autumn Owen, she plays for Marshall. So it's like such a far-reaching shot just because she plays uh, in a – uh, you know, non-power five conference and unfortunately doesn't get that strength of schedule or maybe TV attention that uh, power five teams get. But I mean, the 16 home runs and the over 500 batting average, like that's just unreal. Those are, those are Jocelyn Allo type numbers at, at this point in the season. All right. Well, that was, that was the consensus national player of the year right there. Like, honestly, that's very interesting to me. So, you know, there's a lot of season left. What What's today? We're in April. So there's a lot of season left, but um, obviously a big front runner in Valerie Cagle of Clemson. What she does this weekend against Florida State will go a long way to determining some of that level because it's a big series for them that they're hosting. All right. One more question out of the mailbag. This is from Eileen Vlamas which mid-major has the best chance to advance past regionals? And now here's what I love about Eileen. She has just gone ahead and put in parentheses, obviously it's Go Shockers softball, which we just talked about, um, Wichita State. So thank you for your suggestion, Eileen. But uh, who wants to answer that? Who do we think with the mid-majors? I saw James Madison in person. Um, I was at Duke, North Carolina men's basketball, and I popped over and went to a softball game in my spare time. James Madison looked really good to me. Um, you know, I haven't followed up on how they've done the rest of the way, but let, let's see what they do. Yeah, this was a tough question, uh, you know, because when I look at Wichita State, like obviously their, their hitting stats are off the chart. So I think that that could give them a shot to make it past regionals. But for the most part, I think you have to have a pitcher in the circle that can get the job done, like a strikeout pitcher, pitch to contact, whatever it's going to be, somebody that's going to have a low ERA. And the first person that comes to mind is Jessica Mullins for Texas State. And she already has some big wins over some good teams this year. So she could be a a sneaky one that could come out of a a regional this year. Okay. And then I have a mailbag question for you guys. So I'm just coming off of men's and women's basketball. My head is spinning. I'm not dug into softball like I need to be. What is the best game each of you have done this year? So when I go, I'm going to go look on ESPN and watch games back. So I'm not behind on everything. So I want to go around the circle and tell me the best game you've done this year. Jen, go. That UCLA Stanford game this past weekend. Which one? Game one on Friday? It it was game two. So game one was a pretty dominant win. Game two was closer to one ball game. Beautiful. Kayla. The throwback throwdown, Tennessee, Alabama, midweek. What was it? Two weekends ago now? The 25th of March. Yep. Yes. Uh, That was my edit. I'm literally writing this down. I'm going to just be like checking this list off. Like this is what, these are what my ladies told me to watch. Okay. UCLA Stanford game two. How about you, Maddie? Oh, I was going to say throwback throwdown too with Tennessee and Alabama. That was the, that was the one that popped. That seems to be a favorite. All right, Jenny Dalton Hill, what do you got? I really like the Texas A&M Tennessee series to be able to see the way Texas A&M was able to respond against Tennessee, who was leading the SEC. So I had their Saturday game this past weekend. This past weekend. Okay, I'm on it. Thank you so much. I can't wait to dive into softball season. You guys are obviously deep in it. And then before I let us go, I just want you to tell me one of the best things you guys, uh, no, no, no. I wanted you to tell me where you're going to be this weekend. That's what I wanted. Like, where can people see you? Maddie, let's go. I am going to be doing the uh, Mississippi State and Texas A&M series this entire weekend. So Saturday, Sunday, Monday series. So that's that's my uh, that's my weekend. All right. Check out Madison Shipman. That's a good series. Jen. I'll be spending Easter with my family. Even better. That will be fun. Kayla Bro. Uh, SEC Network Sunday night rally cap. Um, 
debuting That's such this a fun season. show. I love that yep. show. Yep, debuts this Sunday, uh, Easter Sunday at five Eastern. Oh, good. So this is the first show into softball yes. season, right? Because we're just coming out of basketball, obviously. Yes. I feel like, and, and why I'm doing this is I feel like there are a lot of people like me that are just turning their attention to softball now because everybody's been wrapped up in basketball. So this is a good cheat sheet for everybody. And then how about you, Jenny Dalton Hill? So this Sunday, if you are, you know, waiting for mom to prep the meal, maybe dad's making the meal. If you're looking for something to do at noon, I'll be on ACC Network calling Georgia Tech and Boston College. Okay. Is it Easter this Sunday? But this is how bad my sports brain is. Like I never know the holidays anymore because it's, it's always, I, I will be on a plane going to the WNBA draft. So you can watch that on um, Monday, April 10th on ESPN. That's what I'll be doing this weekend. Just Thank you for having for me. Yourself. I had fun. What? Hide some eggs for yourself and you can find them when you get home. If you think I haven't already been eating the Reese's, the Reese's eggs. Oh, what's the best Easter candy? Let's go. Reese's eggs by far. They should sell them year round. They're so good. I agree because the chocolate to peanut butter ratio is so much better. So much better. It It is. is And you can tell people you had eggs for breakfast and they don't ask what kind you just sound healthy, right? And rich because there's. I like the little Cadbury ones that are hard coated. Do you guys like those? No, get those out of there. All get those out. But anybody like peeps? Bless peep haters. (laughs) This is a hard group. Oh my gosh! All right. Well, have a wonderful Easter. Happy softball season, everybody. Be sure and check out all of these wonderful women, and we hope you have enjoyed Seven Innings Podcast today. Thanks for joining us live. We'll see you again this time next week.